0: Well, hey, everybody, great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. I'm honored to have you along for the ride, and I mean, I just can't help myself. Um, A special shout-out to the Michigan fans who have gathered with one another to share in this time of great blessing, and a special shout-out to the Michigan State fans. We gather to stand in solidarity with you in this your time of need. Hashtag Pray for Mel. Okay. Today, we get to continue a series that we've called, Why Follow?, in which we're contemplating the question, why, um, or actually, I'm, I'm explaining why I believe that everybody should follow Jesus. And and I began a few weeks back by acknowledging that in the 21st century, there are many people who just can't understand why anybody would take Jesus seriously anymore. I mean, given all the harm that some of his followers have done in the world, and and after all the divisions within the church, and after all the hatred, and the judgment, and the hypocrisy, I mean, after all that, why would anybody follow Jesus? And and so far in this series, um, we've learned that the journey to finding answers to that question begins when we actually consider another question, and it's a great question. I I would argue it is the question that you really need to wrestle to the ground if you find yourself wondering if Jesus is worth following. The question goes like this. Are the New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus reliable? And, And this is why this is so important. If they are, then we really need to pay attention because they contain the record of a life that literally changed everything for everyone. And okay, so now as many of you know in this series we're exploring one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus in the New Testament of the Bible the one attributed to an early Jesus follower named Luke. And as we've said each week, uh, Luke tells us right at the beginning of his account that he wasn't setting out to write something that he knew would one day end up in the Bible. His intent, and, and he tells us this specifically as he begins his account, was to document a truly exceptional life. So here's how Luke begins his account. He writes, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were." Uh, who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. In, In other words, Luke tells us that the life of Jesus was a story that just had to be told. And so he went about the business of interviewing eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and then prepared an orderly account of what happened so that a friend in Rome initially would know, but ultimately that the world would know what had happened in his time. Uh, and say, okay. So for the rest of our, our time this morning, what I want to do is explore another section of Luke's account that reveals another reason why I think everybody should follow Jesus. And, and the reason, just to kind of put it right up, uh, right up front, goes like this: Jesus was the first person in recorded history to ignore the artificial social stratification of the human race and invite everyone, regardless of their status regardless of their nation of origin, and even regardless of their system of belief, to enter a relationship with their creator. In other words, he taught that every human being had value in God's eyes, and consequently, every human being deserved dignity and respect. And I mean, 2,000 years later, we kind of look at that and go, yeah, that's kind of self-evident, isn't it? And and it is to us, but it wasn't even close to self-evident in the ancient world until Jesus made it evident. Okay, so Jesus first introduced this idea during a conversation that he had one day with an expert in the Jewish law, like a Jewish religious professional. And Luke records what happened for us this way. He writes, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, which by the way is always a great idea. Testing Jesus, you're going to get him every time. That was a joke. Didn't work. Okay, moving on. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you should know that this expert in the law asked Jesus here what would have been a very typical question among religious people in the first century. It's a question that got to the heart of what it meant to live a life that honored God. In fact, the expert in the law could also have phrased the question this way, uh, how do you believe that God desires me to live? Like the sort of life that works now and then extends into eternity. And so he asked Jesus the question, and as is often the case, Jesus answered this guy's question with another question. I just, for some reason, I find that hilarious. So if he looks back at him and he says this. Well, what is written in the law? Like the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, what is written in your law? And he, and he said, how do you read it? In other words, you know, tell me what you think the Old Testament law teaches you must do in order to honor God with your life. And the expert responded. He says, well, here's what we need to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. That, that, that's, that's what we need to do. And it's easy for us to miss, but the expert here responds by quoting a section of what the Jewish people call the Shema. And Shema is a Hebrew word that means to hear or to listen. And it's the first word in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is in the Old Testament. And everyone in Jesus' day, whether it was a religious professional or you know a common laborer, everyone knew that it was the most important of the 613 commandments. Everything had to revolve around the love of God. Of God with everything in you, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was to be the top priority. And so everyone agreed on that, but if you think about it, the expert's answer to Jesus' question, again, which would, which would have been expected, raises another question. Because how do you know if someone is loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? How do you measure someone's love of God? And and, and so the as the expert in the law continues, he provides his answer to that question. He said, well, How do you know if you're loving God? He says this, love your neighbor as yourself. He essentially says here that he believes the best way to measure someone's love of God was by their love of their neighbor. When someone loves their neighbor who they can see, they're expressing love for God who they can't see. And Jesus quickly affirms this guy's understanding. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this, like love your neighbor like you love yourself, and you will live. In other words, do this and you will find a life that honors God. And and so it's, it's worth noting that elsewhere in the accounts of Jesus' life, the authors record that Jesus taught his followers that if they committed to demonstrating their love of God by loving other people, then they really didn't need to worry about any of the other commandments. Like if they loved... Everything else would fall into place. So it's possible this expert in the law had heard Jesus say that and was just sort of mimicking his response, but and there's no way to know for sure. But but honestly, if you think about it, even this guy's answer to love your neighbor like you love yourself raises another question. And the, the expert in law actually asked Jesus. He says this. So this is really where the rubber hits the road. Well, who is my neighbor? Okay, so if we agree that the greatest command is to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and how you do that is to love your neighbor like you love yourself, then, of course, who is my neighbor? Like, how far are we going to extend this definition of neighbor? Because that matters a lot. I mean, if my love of God is, again, authenticated and demonstrated love I share with the neighbor, then who is my neighbor? Well, the word neighbor in the Hebrew language literally translates one who is close So historically speaking, the first century Jews interpreted this to mean that they were to love other Jewish people as they loved themselves. Um, And then uh, the super intense religious types, the Pharisees, um, they were obsessed with following the rules. They said, no, 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 the definition of neighbor can't be all the Jewish people because not all the Jewish people follow the rules. Some of them are naughty, so we're going to pull it in, right? And just the other Jews who are following the religious traditions, that's who your neighbor is. Is. And then there was another group of a conservative group within the Jewish people that narrowed it down to mean, and I love this one pretty much anybody they wanted it to mean. <laughs> like they said, hey, if someone liked you, then they were your neighbor. And if they didn't like you, then they weren't. You had no obligation whatsoever to love people like you love yourself who didn't like you. You didn't need to concern yourself with, with helping them or caring for them uh, unless they. Like you, so those were kind of the that was what was in the air in the first century when this expert asked Jesus this question. But, but I'm telling you, this expert in the law couldn't possibly have imagined what Jesus was about to say to him, because in in answer to the question, "Who is my neighbor?", Jesus told him a story. And what I love that because I imagine the twelve disciples are all standing behind Jesus going, Oh, he is doing it again. Why can't he just give the guy a response? So the guy's like, Well, who is my neighbor? And and so here's what Jesus says. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the guy's like, no, dude, who is, don't do this. Like, why are you, why does it have to be so hard? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. He says they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So as you can see, the story opens here with a bit of tension, right? And what I want to do is give you a bit of context that Jesus' first audience would have understood to show you what Jesus is doing here. So the walk from Jerusalem, which is in the mountains, down to Jericho, which is in the Rift Valley near the uh, Jordan River, it's like 17 miles long. And during the 17 miles, you experience 3,300 feet of decrease in elevation. And as you can see, it's tropical and lush, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah. So you got to carry your water. In the summer, when the sun is at its peak, it can get like 110 degrees along this trail. And you say, how would you ever know that? Well, my wife and I walked a section of the trail when it was 110 degrees. And I'll never forget, we got off the bus and there's this sign on a little easel thing that said, camels not available due to heat. (laughs) And I looked at our guide like, and we're still going to, the camels who live here aren't going to walk and we're going to walk. And he's like, We're going to walk. And I remember looking at my wife going, man, if we survive this, this is going to be a great story. But anyway, so Jesus explains that the man in the narrative fell into the hands of robbers who left him half dead. And then he says this, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And I usually know it would not have been unusual for priests to travel down the Jericho road from Jerusalem uh, because scholars tell us that many of the priests had uh, winter homes in Jericho. It was warmer because it was not in the mountains, and so there was a lot of back and forth by priests. But but Jesus' story does raise a really interesting question. Specifically, why did he pass by the man who was so clearly in need? And we, we don't know. But what's clear is between the time the priest saw the man and the time he passed him by, he somehow convinced himself not to stop. And as I imagine it, there would have been some internal dialogue. You know, Maybe he thought like the man was already dead, and what are you going to do with him if he's already dead? Or maybe he was in a hurry to make it to an appointment. Uh, or, or it's even possible, strange as this sounds, that the guy was actually trying to honor God's law by avoiding the man. And, and here's why I say that. In the Old Testament book of numbers that 's the fifth book in the Old Testament, there are instructions for a whole lot of different things, including dead bodies seriously it 's a great read over lunch, right So Jewish people were taught that if they touched a dead body, then they would be rendered ceremonially unclean for seven days, like if they were in a tent with somebody when they died they 'd be ceremonially unclean um, if they went near a dead body. They'd be ceremonially unclean again for seven days. And, and now here's why that's such a big deal. For a priest, if a priest became ceremonially unclean, they couldn't do their work in the temple. So maybe that was the reason. We can't know for sure. But, but somehow this priest convinced himself that God couldn't possibly want him to help somebody who may very well be in need. And so Jesus continues to tell the story. And as he does another character enters he says so too a levite and i'll tell you who a levite is in a second when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side and, and, and so like a levite would have been a couple of steps below the priest on the social ladder back then but he still would have been involved in the temple worship and so he too decides to move away from the man in need and pass by on the other side he said you know it's better if i if i don't stop if i just keep walking uh, but, I, but I think there's something here that's worth noting because it's very clear in the parable that Jesus exaggerates in order to make his point. And we, we don't get this um, until we've, we've seen these pictures or been in the land because take a look at this. If you're going to pass by on the other side, then the, right, the Levite and the priest would have had to climb down through the huge rift valley that had been carved by rushing waters generations ago. The Jewish people call it a wadi in order to reach the path on the other side of the ravine along which the Jericho Road runs. So nobody would ever do that. It would be way too much work. But what Jesus wants his audience to know is that the priest and the Levite were going to do whatever it took to avoid extending the definition of neighbor to the wounded man. Like, that guy does not deserve our help. And then, as Jesus continues, the narrative takes like a super shocking turn. Because everybody who was listening to Jesus that day would have expected that the third character in the story was going to be a Jew. So there were a whole bunch of stories in the first century that were like a priest, a Levite, and a Jew walked into a bar. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. And, And so in the story, the Jew was always the hero, right? It was never the priest and it was never the Levite. But that wasn't exactly what Jesus had in mind. He had a very specific point that he was trying to make. So he says this. But a Samaritan, and again, we go, oh, a Samaritan. I don't know what that is. They would have been like, no, no. But a Samaritan, I'll tell you why in a second. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and and then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn. I mean, he just takes it to 11, right? But this is a story. So brought him to an inn and, and took care of him. So the key to understanding what Jesus is doing here is another little bit of historical context, because in Jesus' day, Jewish people hated Samaritans. they were like the ultimate bad guys, and they had hated them for generations. And here's why. Hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, a group of Jewish people had been deported by a pagan king. And over time, this group intermarried with the pagans and became known as the Samaritans. And so the first century Jews, Samaritans were half-breeds. They were mudbloods, ah, right? Yeah. Moreover, the Samaritan religion was this mixture of Jewish and pagan folk customs. And, and so they just looked down on them. They said, this, this, is a, this is not what God had in mind. Moreover, the Samaritans even had the audacity to suppose that they had replaced the Jews as the people of God and that the true temple to God was no longer in Jerusalem but it was in their capital in Samaria. In fact, and I I love this detail, um, there's a Jewish historian named Josephus who records that Samaritans in the first century were the only group of people on earth who were not allowed to convert to Judaism. Right? And and like, it was cool with them because they never would have wanted to. But they were like the ultimate untouchables. And yet in his parable, Jesus makes the Samaritan The hero. And his point to this expert in the law is that whenever you see someone, whenever you see anyone who's wounded and dying, God wants you to show them mercy and compassion. And so Jesus says that instead of leveraging mental gymnastics to justify not intervening, the Samaritan did what needed to be done, he helped the wounded man. And then, and Jesus just lays it on thick here, the next day, the Samaritan, who's the good guy, right, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. It's like in the story, Jesus is sticking the knife in the guy and just twisting the expert in the law. like, no, he didn't do that. And it's like, it's a story, dude, but you gotta pay attention. The point's coming, right? What's interesting, there's 12 different action verbs used to describe what the Samaritan did to the wounded man. And if you were the expert in the law and heard each one of these verbs drop, you would just cringe because a Samaritan wasn't supposed to be the hero of the story ever. And according to Jesus, he was. So so anyway, after telling the story, Jesus asked the expert in the law a question. And this just burns. This is so good. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the?" I mean, the whole thing was like you said, who is my neighbor? And I'm like, Well, the guy was walking from Jericho down to Jerusalem. Well, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. Which one of these men loved their neighbor like they loved themselves? Which one of these guys did for the other what they would want done for them? Which one of these guys demonstrated and authenticated their love of God through love of neighbor? And as you can see, like, the implications of this parable are staggering, Because Jesus looks at an expert in the Jewish law. The guy had spent his life studying the law of God to try to be the sort of person that God wanted him to be in the world. And he basically looks at him and he says, listen, your heart may be in the right place, but you're trying to define neighbor in a way that makes you comfortable. But that's not what God intends for his people. Not by a long shot. And and so, confronted with a question that he really didn't want to answer, the expert in the law looks back at Jesus and he says that the neighbor, I guess the guy that was the neighbor to the wounded man was um, the one who had mercy on him. I think that's really funny. You don't think that's funny. Here's why it's funny. He doesn't even use the word Samaritan. He's like, my mom won't even let me say that word. It's a swear word. Not saying it. Nope. The one who had mercy on him, right? And, and even though, that, you know, I, I just can't get my head around what you're doing here. But yeah, the Samaritan was the one who showed him mercy. So I guess the Samaritan was the one who who demonstrated what we should do. And Jesus isn't quite done yet. He looks back at the expert in the law and he says this to him. Go and do likewise. In other words, go be like the Samaritan. Oh, so good. I'm telling you, in this moment, this is such a powerful thing. And, and, And basically like, Jesus in this moment is doing something so brilliant, so radically ahead of his time. He's basically looking at this ancient audience and he says to them, listen, neighbor love has no boundaries because God's love has no boundaries. Neighbor love has no boundaries because God's love has no boundaries. And this is why this is so inspiring to me. Nobody in the ancient world thought this way and nobody in the ancient world lived this way. And nobody in the ancient world could even imagine a world like this. I mean, there's many people all over the world today that still can't imagine a world like this. But see, according to Jesus, from God's perspective, everyone, like even our worst enemies, are our neighbors and deserve to be loved like we love ourselves. And so now, just for fun, I made a list that might get your dander up a little bit, but fear not my goal is to get everybody's yander up including myself like i was writing this week and i was like whoo that one burns me so here we go ready buckle up <clears throat> everyone deserves Okay, oh, can you put that back up a second tim everyone deserves to neighbor love is nobody yeah love of neighbor has no bounds. here we go ready even the person whose yard signs and bumper stickers make you furious do you have these people you don't have to if they're next to you don't point it's awkward right yeah I got another one. Even the person whose political affiliation makes you nauseous. Huh? Even the woke progressives that you know and even the militant conservatives that you know. Now we're all offended. See, I got there. Okay. (laughs) Even the people who don't believe like you believe. Even the people who believe the opposite of you believe. Even the people whose Facebook posts make you question their salvation. Am I the only one? Right? Yeah. There are no exceptions. Jesus wants us to love every neighbor and everyone is our neighbor. And so Jesus looks at this expert in the law 2,000 years ago and he says, listen, if you want to live the life that honors God in this life, the sort of life that reverberates through eternity, if you want to demonstrate your love of God and your commitment to God in this world, you've got to love people, all people everywhere. Because that's what God is like. And at this point, I know what at least a few of you are thinking. Because I always try to have these hypothetical conversations when I'm working on this stuff. And, and you're like, okay, that, okay, got it. But what is, I mean, we talked about what is neighbor. Okay, that makes sense. But what is love? What does that look like practically? And fortunately for us, There was a pastor named Paul who defined it 2,000 years ago in a letter to Christians living in Greece. And you've heard this before if you've been married. (laughs) Check this out. Love. Remember this one? I tried to do a wedding once and not include this verse. And did I get a talking to by grandma? Yes, I did. There was a, so where is your license held? I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. Okay. Love is Patient. Like if you're like what does love require of me in this moment with this difficult person? Love is patient. I have this memorized because I honestly have those moments just like you do where I get furious about something and I immediately have trained my brain to go okay, what does love require? And if I just I go to love is patient, I can normally just stop. That's all I need. Just like slow your roll, dude. Love is patient. Okay. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And I love that. Love never fails. Ever. I guess what I'm trying to say is that love, as simple as this sounds, loving people is what it means to live the way God designed us to live right here and right now. To access the sort of life that he intends for us to live. And to the point of this series, it is also a teaching that was so radically ahead of its time that I'm convinced it's another reason why everybody should follow Jesus. Like, Like, this was not a natural step in human thinking. This was a massive leap forward, a supernatural leap forward. And we'll pick it up there next week. Um, Now, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time in prayer. Um, And before I do that again, we've started a tradition. um, We want to make available a few volunteers. If you need someone to pray with you, Um, if you have a situation in your life and you just need to talk for a little bit, we would love to meet you just under the screen right over here after I pray. Um, And for the rest of us, let's, let's close our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the brilliance of Jesus. Thank you that he knew and even embodied the sort of reality that you had in mind when you created people in the first place. And we confess that we are trying to navigate a lot of very complicated situations in a world that has gone in a lot of ways off the rails. Thank you for the clarity of this teaching that we would approach every interaction, every relationship, every conversation with love and with grace, hoping to show the other person the dignity they deserve because they were made in your image just like we were made in your image. And so give us courage as we, as we try to put legs on this this week. I pray that for all of us, when, when we feel ourselves getting angry, we would hear the words of Paul, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud. Love is patient, love is kind. And as we do, I pray that the light from our lives, the light of your son reflected through us would, would shine maybe a little brighter this week, that the world may come to see that Jesus is worth following because Jesus is worth everything. So for today, we ask your grace and your peace to be on us all. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part six of Why Follow.